action. To Torn Stubbs, welcome with photographer Robert Gushinson, me, and <laughs> winning Josh. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> to the movies we are going. I'll take this bit, Yoda. Thank you very much, Yoda. To celebrate the release of Josh's new book, The Shadow Glass, out on March 22nd from Titan Books, we are deep diving into the best of 1980s fantasy and sci-fi and seeing what got Joshua's creative juices bubbling. Joshua... You make it sound so romantic. It's very romantic. (laughs) It's like a bath bomb. Yeah, okay, yeah. Fizzing, Fizzing away, sort of slightly dangerous for the skin... That's creativity. Perfect. Remind me, what did you study at uni? I studied film and communications because you couldn't just study film, basically. That's fine, but you've become a a journalist and an author. So were you always, from a kid, wanting to be an author? Why did you divert to film and journalism? <laughs> You're making a very you're making the assumption that I had any plan whatsoever with regard to my life. <laughs> I didn't have a plan. My my plan was basically my parents wanted me to go to university and at the time I was really into film and I had a lot of I was running film websites, I was writing about film and so that was just sort of a logical uh, thing to do basically and I, I know when I look back I'm like why didn't I just do English but I'd never really had <laughs> that much interest in in studying English you, you know I, I was into film I love the medium of film and I kind of when I'm writing I, I'm writing a movie basically even though it's, it's going to be a book I see it as a film in my head but why is it a book that that's the thing why did you divert to writing books why didn't you divert to writing screenplays because that's that's a different discipline i've i enjoy writing books i i've done i've dabbled in screenwriting as well but just the craft of writing a book to me is is really interesting and really rewarding in a way that writing a script isn't i think a script is always like a a sort of it's a blueprint it's something that you use to create something else whereas a book is in itself a finished product so that's kind of why i like it i think I always struggle reading scripts because they they can be quite dry. Yeah. Especially plays, like reading Shakespeare or even reading modern stuff like This Is Our Youth or The Boys in the Band. It can be quite dry because it's just dialogue. Yeah. I like, with a novel, I like the fact that the world is built around it and the thrills are there. Yeah, and I think there are certain writers and directors who do write screenplays in a sort of a novelistic fashion like I think James Cameron his scripts are quite sort of nice to read um and And Tarantino yeah Tarantino as well exactly like they can turn it into an art into unto itself um but I just kind of don't I'd rather just write a book (laughs) well the book is like you said the finished piece the script Mm. is the starting point yeah and I just kind of hate I hate the idea that I, it's, it must be a control thing and sort of like a perfectionist thing where um, I know that the script is just one tiny cog within the wheel of, of a film. And so I kind of, there's a bit of me that just really hates the idea that you do 
not have full creative control over the finished product. And that could go, you know, that could go in a really positive direction where the script is sort of like, okay, and then the director makes it great. But the the idea that there are so many other pieces that go into making a film, um, and I would be one well, it depends very if you're small part. in control of it or not. Yeah, exactly. You might be the writer-director. But were you always a, a bookworm? Yeah, massively. Complete bookworm. What did you start reading as a kid? Oh, you know, all the usual stuff like Narnia and Roald Dahl. Um, I was a big, big Robin Jarvis fan who he did sort of... There'd be classes YA now, like YA fantasy. But they are really dark in the same way that, you know, my favourite fantasy films at that time were um, classed as for kids, but also really dark and had quite grown up stuff in them. Um, yeah, so I kind of grew up reading fantasy horror. And when did you move on to sort of more adult fare? Um, probably, I would say sort of 12, 13 is when I started reading like Stephen King and James Her- like James Herbert really freaked me out. I don't know what it was about him compared to Stephen King, but I remember, is there a book called, it's not The Dark Half because that's Stephen King, but there's a, there's a book with a similar title to that written by James Herbert and there's just some really, really sort of realistically horrible things that happen in it. I think there's, there's a bit with a nurse where she's sort of abusing her patient. Um, you know, stuff that I probably shouldn't be reading at 12, 13. And, you know, there was a reason. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of around the age I started reading more grown-up stuff. But that's also the age I started getting more into film, I think. So I kind of read less and became more of a film fan. But when was the spark where you said, I'm going to write a novel. Because when we met, you'd already written a full-on draft of what would later become The Sentinel. I think it was called The Everlasting at that point. Yeah. Yeah. There was never really a spark. It was just something I did. Just as a kid, you know, I would just write. I would just write stories. I've always loved stories. Um, and so I, I would just write. That's what I did. And my, my dad always has always said, um, you know, there were just never enough hours in the day for me you know I was always up doing something writing reading playing games you know using my imagination and I think storytelling was just another way to use my imagination and so there was never I don't remember a very a specific thing that that made me do it I remember coming runner-up in a competition when I was in year five so that would have been I would have been what eight nine and there was a competition to write a short story based on the Miss Whiz books and I think I just wrote it and it went off and then suddenly one day I had this parcel come into school into the classroom and I opened it up and it was like you're the runner-up in this competition here's some free books and I was like I'd forgotten I'd even entered the competition but you know there you go who won who was the winner I have no idea this was like pre-internet no one told me anything all I knew was I got a runner-up and I did google it actually um, sort of a couple of years was ago, it J.K. Rowling. And it was Did J.K. Win? Fucking Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> no, who knows? I would love to know who actually won and what they're doing now. It'd be interesting. Well, I bet they haven't got a book out on March twenty second called The Shadow Glass from Titan Books. I really hope not, because otherwise, uh, you know, there's some trouble ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get into it. This episode, we watched Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Joshua, give us the rundown.
It is a dark time for the rebellion. Darth Vader is still spearheading the evil empire and is hell-bent on rooting out and destroying the rebels. That's if he can tear himself away from killing his useless admirals long enough to do so. With Han, played by Harrison Ford, and Leia, played by Carrie Fisher, on the run in a malfunctioning Millennium Falcon, Luke, played by Mark Hamill, travels to Swamp Planet Dagobah in order to train under Master Yoda. But nothing is quite what it seems in this adventure, and a shocking revelation will test Luke's loyalty to the Jedi once and for all. So this is the second instalment of Star Wars, even though it's episode five. I think we are all not confused about that anymore. We all know this. It's directed by Irving Kirshner. Stupid question. Have you seen it before? <laughs> I have seen it before. And it probably helps that we do now have episodes one, two, three, seven, eight, nine. Because when this film came out and for a long time afterwards, it was still just episode four, five and six. So hmm, that would have... Yeah. No wonder if people were like, well... Where the, where the hell are the other ones then? <laughs> well, here's the thing. When did you first come into Star Wars? Uh, when did I first come I into it. Star Wars? I, I just, I actually, this, this film started a long tradition of watching the sequel first, which is something that seemed to happen a lot yeah. throughout my teenage years. And uh, this is one that I found in the video cupboard that we had when I was a kid. It had been taped off tv and all the label said was star wars it didn't say empire strikes back it didn't say episode five it just said star wars it was in widescreen for some reason uh so i put it on was really confused about the big black bars that were taking up more of the the tv than the actual movie because in those <laughs> days we had the square tvs huge massive massive tv yeah um and watched it and was just completely blown away by it and i think there's very few films that i remember watching for the first time um but i just it's just for some reason i just remember finding this tape that said star wars watching it loving it being completely oblivious to the fact that it was actually the second part in a series did it matter though could you follow the story i guess so i mean it's all very um it's all very sort of you can you're able to tell kind of what roles the characters play very early on you know it's very effective i think you know there's so much that we take for granted with star wars but i think that what it one thing it does really well is that it it plays into those archetypes and so it's easy for you just just to put it on and watch it because you immediately get the sense that han is the rogue leia is the the princess Luke is the sort of the young ingenue kind of character. The robots are there to do comedy relief. You know, it's very it's an easy world to slip into, I think. So I guess that's why it, it really hooked me when as a kid. When's the first time you saw it? So the first time I actually saw it was the nineteen ninety seven special edition re release. Mm, yeah. It's when I was watching episode four, so the very first Star Wars, that I realised I had seen a bit of this film before mm. and I remember years before it must have been on TV because my dad switched over and there was just this film where there was these planes and they were in space and they were in this sort of grey tunnel <laughs> shooting at stuff 
Yeah. And I didn't think of anything of it then. I didn't even remember until I was watching Star Wars Episode Four for the very first time. And I thought, I've seen this bit. Mm-hmm. I've seen this Death Star run before. And I remembered it was that film. That was when I was 14. So I don't have... I don't have an emotional connection to Star Wars like I do other stuff because by 14 I think you're already beginning to make your own decisions it's not kind of it's not sort of thrust upon you and it becomes part of your your safe world yeah but I do really like Star Wars but I don't have an affinity to the original versions mm. so I'm not one of these people that goes oh he George Lucas D fucked it. It's rubbish. <laughs> because as far as I'm concerned, the special editions is Star Wars. Yeah. I never saw it without the included bits. So I I don't I don't care that they're there. I actually think the included bits help it come together even more. Yeah. And even when he updated it in two thousand four for the D V D release and at the end of Return of the Jedi, in place of whichever crusty white guy they got in the back in the day to play Anakin, they put Hayden Mm. Christensen. That makes so much sense. Yeah. So much sense. Yeah. So I'm not one of these people that goes, George Lucas ruined my childhood because it wasn't part of my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) And also the stuff that was added into Empire is, um, it's not pure CGI stuff like the, uh, God, what's the thing called in, in Hoth that attacks Luke? The like, the, the yet- oh, the Wampa. Yeah, the Wampa. So that wasn't actually mm. even really in the the original version. Like you saw, I think you saw glimpses of him, and then when they added him in, you, saw, you heard some noises. Yeah, but you didn't like that shot where it's like full on chomping on something before it realizes that Luke's awake. That's mm-hmm. a 1997 shot, and it works. It does because it's it's still practical. It makes so it scene. fits in seamlessly. But even the even the CGI additions. I'm I'm okay with like when they're first arriving on Cloud City or when they're running through Cloud City in like the, the finale and they've removed the background and expanded the background so you can see out into the the, the well the clouds and, and, and the city. It just it, it just you know, it adds to it. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel egregious, it doesn't feel like it sticks out. Yeah. It actually works. I think especially Empire has such a it the style of it like the look of it is still so modern in a lot of ways you know if you look at that entire sequence where han is frozen in in carbon i mean basically from that moment on to the end of the film it looks really grown up it looks slick and rich and sort of modern and so actually i think when you when you add in these little pieces that sort of boost bits that george lucas wasn't happy with they do kind of fit in because the film doesn't actually look that old i don't think no i I don't think it does look old obviously it is now 40 yeah 42 years old it's older than both of us but i think it's the impact and the influence is so great that people filmmakers are have been copying empire strikes back over and over and over again. Yeah. I would say this new bunch of Star Wars is more in line with Empire Strikes Back than they are with the original Star Wars. I'm talking about the films, the TV shows, the Star Wars yeah. TV shows are clearly based on uh, the original 
uh, 1977 version yeah yeah definitely yeah because i i think that force awakens i i really enjoyed force awakens and i was kind of surprised when i discovered that some people didn't but um it still looks like empire strikes back and it's quite nice you know it it fits into that world quite nicely i think why mess with with something that works brilliantly because it's dark Mm. and it's dank it's like it's i guess it's what would become known as um sort of a cyberpunk neo-noir yeah so have you ever met anybody who's never seen star wars because it's so huge it's sort of impossible to overestimate just how much of an impact it's had on the cinematic landscape i don't think i have i don't think i've ever had a conversation where someone hasn't seen star wars i've obviously had conversations where people don't like it yeah but they've seen it in order to have that opinion so no i don't think i have have you yeah no no never it's it's quite something to be able to say star wars and everyone knows what you're talking about yeah but why is that do you think what what is it that made it so such a huge phenomenon well it's probably the most important piece of pop culture in the latter half of the 20th century i guess back in the day everyone would be like have you ever met anyone who hasn't read a shakespeare yeah (laughs) have you ever i say you there boy have you ever met anyone that's never read a charles dickens yes have you heard of christmas it's just it's everywhere it, and it's not just everywhere as itself. It's everywhere in everything else. It's been so hugely influential. Mm. It's bits of Star Wars everywhere, whether overtly or completely subtly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with that as well. But I also think that just in terms of the makeup of the movie, it's so crammed full of really fascinating detail, which is why... It's been able to spin off for over, what, 40, 50 years. You know, if you look at Empire Strikes Back, any one frame of the film, there'll be a character in the corner who you suddenly learn more about further down the line. Or there'll be a certain droid that you then learn more about down the line. Or there'll be, you know, a throwaway line, sort of, you scruffy looking nerve herder. You know, things like that (laughs) that create this world. And I think that people more than anything even probably more than characters, I think people fall in love with worlds. And that's possibly why Star Wars has just never gone away, because it's a world that people want to lose themselves in. Yeah, 100%. That explains why, you know, Star Wars isn't just three films or now nine films. There's untold issues of comic books and untold computer games and card games, and tabletop games, and expanded universe books that were full-on proper canon Mm. until Disney said, nope, the only canon are the original three films and the prequels, and we're going to do our own thing. So I guess now Star Wars has a multiverse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because they kind of take place in a different uh, version of reality, I guess. Yeah, because the... sequel trilogy had already been written in the books yeah exactly yeah you see luke skywalker growing up and yada 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 he turns to the dark side palpatine comes back as a clone and in order for disney to make their new movies they had to say well we can't do that we want to do our own thing which but it makes sense because not only Mm. sort of on a on a license level i guess where i don't know what the licenses are with the books that were published 
before the the, you know, the new trilogy came out, but you would have a I was lot not licensed. Of... They were done through Lucasfilm. Okay. Lucasfilm and LucasArts. So George Lucas basically carried on his Star Wars stories mm. through the books and through the comics. He would always be the one who authorized it all, but someone else would write it and someone else would draw it. Right. But it would always be based on his ideas. He'd have final say. Yeah. It's George Lucas. Yeah, yeah. But I guess for me, it kind of makes sense to wipe that slate clean because I'm... I count myself as a Star Wars fan, but I haven't read any of the the spin-off books. I've read a couple of the comics, but I didn't sort of completely lose myself in, what, 20, 30 books in the wake of Return of the Jedi. Hundreds, hundreds of books. Right. Well, there you go. So that's why. There's just, it's, yeah, it's it's too much. This This goes back to something that we spoke about in Avengers Infinity mm. War episode, where I said... I raised the idea of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was a DC Comics series that by the 80s, basically the DC universe was a multiverse. You had all these different versions of Superman, all these different planets, all these different worlds. He had like Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth X, Earth A, Earth B, and each one had its own version of Batman, each had its own <laughs> version of Superman, and on and on and on. And it was getting to the point where how the fuck can anyone keep up with this shit? How can new readers jump on? So they said, right, big etch a sketch, we're going to shake it, delete <laughs> everything. And they did it in this, they did it in this series called Crisis on Infinite Earths, where a big, um, uh, like antimatter thing was eating the earth and it was being controlled by someone called the Monitor. And <laughs> at the end of it, it was all condensed down to one and everything restarted again from fresh. All the canon, all the continuity, all started again. So it's great for Disney to do that. And if they had to choose certain things to be part of the new canon, it was always going to be the six films and the Clone Wars cartoon. Yeah. The one thing I will say about that, and I know that there is kind of a Star Trek versus Star Wars thing that has been going on for years and years and years. But the one thing I will say is that when J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek in 2009, I think he did find quite a nice clever way of honoring the existing fans while also sort of folding in potential new viewers by kind of having the uh is it is it chris pine's dad does he slip through a time hole or something right at the beginning of the film so it kind of sets a whole new section of reality where we can go okay well all of those films that you loved with Shatner and and Patrick Stewart and everyone, they still exist, they still count, but we are going to do this thing over here as well. And maybe because Star Trek has always had more of a sort of a toe in the science side of sci-fi, they were able to do that. Whereas I think with Star Wars, they maybe would have had to have more of a fantastical explanation because the science would have been like, why are you talking to me about science now? (laughs) You know, this isn't necessarily sci-fi. That's the thing. Star Wars isn't sci-fi, it's fantasy. Yeah, it's space fantasy. Yeah, but it doesn't really deal with science. And when it tries to deal with science ever so slightly, people went, sorry, midichlorian what? What are you talking about? Midi-audio settings on the MacBook Pro? No, (laughs) but, you know, Star Wars is fantasy and you can't bog down in these hard and fast details like, science or as george lucas learned to his peril politics yeah (laughs) yeah right so 
the thing with the the Star Trek reset, it was kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other. They may not have overtly said, right, Leonard Nimoy and um, what's his name, William Shatner, that's done, that's finished with, we're going to do this new thing over here. Yes, they found a nice little twist, but they haven't actually made any new old ones, have they? No. So it's basically the same thing. At least with Disney, they were just like, nope, nope, fuck that. That's in the bin. I wonder if they'll do like a Spider-Verse version of Star Trek where they'll get all these still living captains together for the new film because they've been struggling to get Star Trek 4 off the ground for years now. They better hurry up because Shatner's not getting any I know. He's already trying to get get away from Earth. (laughs) He's been jetting off into space. Oh, yeah, he is, isn't he? (laughs) What if he doesn't come back? He really is. Um, The thing that struck me about Empire Strikes Back on this watch, because I haven't seen it for a, for a while. It starts on such a downbeat and such a bleak tone, and there's no action until the 25th minute when Hoth Battle kicks off. I think that would be absolutely unheard of now. You know, these Marvel films and Transformers films and the new Star Wars films all start on an action beat. Mm. Yeah, if you compare the opening to Empire with, say, Revenge of the Sith, which opens with Anakin and I think Obi-Wan sort of like zipping around in, in spaceships, fighting a gazillion Straight other into ships. a big battle. Massive pixel battle. Yeah, it's completely different. Yeah. But the thing about the opening for Empire is it, it still has stakes because within seconds, Luke's been attacked by the Wampa and has been sort of mm-hmm. Wampanapped. Um, and... You know, no one knows where he is and they have to save him. And there's that very real feeling of like that, that Tauntaun is going to freeze out there before you find anyone. And so are you, that, that guy's sister Han. So there are still stakes and it still plunges you immediately into the peril, but it doesn't do it in this sort of overtly flashy, ridiculous way. It does it in a way that is about the characters and it tells you Han is not going to listen to his superiors. He's just, well, not even his superior, he's just a rebel. He'll just gonna, he's going to go out and do what he thinks is right. Luke hasn't yet developed enough to become more than essentially a damsel in distress. You know, he ends up having to be saved. Mm. And then there's Leia, who's just sort of like pissed off with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I just love films that take their time. Mm. I love it. Well, it's world building. It, it, earns, the... it earns our attention. Exactly. It earns our attention. I was, yeah, I, I was surprised as well watching it again this time. That it took so. I thought the Atats came out immediately, within ten minutes, but they no. don't. No, you have to coax them out. You've got to start them up. Get the engine warming. Exactly. Get the deicer on the windows. <laughs> don't leave your coffee on the roof. But the thing when the Battle of Hoth actually starts, it's so rewarding because it, it the film is building and it's kind of going from one to three and then to four and then suddenly boom we're at ten mm. and we've got this amazing. 10 it doesn't overstate its welcome it's a 10 minute sequence and it's phenomenal it blows me away completely it is the perfect blend of live action and there's model work and there's composite photography Hmm. the physicality and the texture of real life models just cgi can't achieve that Hmm. and i don't know if that's because we grew up in the amblin environment you know we grew up in the spielberg era the pre-digital era where we absolutely just believed you know 
the composites, even if they were slightly off, or we just believed the models, or if our eye is actually tricking us and CGI just doesn't have that realness because it's a you know it's quite shiny and things move in a way that isn't real isn't natural yeah but i just love that i just love that mixture of models and live action yeah it's just got such a brilliant weight and texture yeah that's the thing it's got weight to it and it's just so charming because you can just see the craft that has been has been put into it and i think that i think that cgi animators do kind of get a bit of a short thrift when people are kind of like oh cgi is rubbish and there are cases when it is rubbish but they do put a hell of a lot of hours into creating those images so you know credit where it's due but at the same time i think that models and puppets there's just such a charm to them and there's such an immediate sense of craftsmanship that you don't really get from cgi unless it's something truly unusual and spectacular when CGI is used well, and not just the case of when it's constructed well, when it's used well, I really like it. So David Fincher has a really cool way of using CGI. He'll look at the scene and go, how can we elevate it using CGI? Mm. But if you're, if you're constructing your scene and everything around it is there to support the CGI, that to me is... That's the, the the equation is the wrong way around. around. Yeah. And that's the problem with the prequels. With the prequels, it felt like the actors were in front of the action. So you might as well have just done some old school rear projection. Yeah. You know, like Roger Moore skiing down a, a mountain <laughs> in Bond. Yeah. It was just a fancy version of that. I think my my thinking with CGI always goes back to Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. When he says, you know, I'm completely paraphrasing, but he says something like, we were so concerned with if we could that we never stopped to think if we should. And I always think that's true of CGI is just because we can doesn't mean we should. Yes. And I often find that certain films bite off more than they can chew. So a lot of it looks great, but then there's always a few bits where you go, could you not have just spent 10 more minutes on that? Like Mark Ruffalo's head in the, the Hulk Iron Man suit in Avengers. Infinity. Oh yeah, that's so funny. Not, could you not have just spent ten more minutes? It looks like you've cut his head out and stuck it on. Yeah. Here's a question: When did Lucas know, or when did he decide that Luke and Leia were twins? Yeah. Well, what I know from sort of reading around the making of the film, I think he did know that Leia was his twin sister, or he definitely had the idea of having a twin sister always there. Um, but when you rewatch it every time she kisses him now, I'm like, <gasps> see, he knew that she was his sister, her sister, his sister. Of course he did. Yeah. Cause there's, there's the, the line towards the end when Luke is fucking off from Dagobah to, to go save his friends. Uh, Obi-Wan goes, no, Yoda goes, that boy is our last hope. Mm. And Ben, Obi-Wan goes, no, there is another. Yeah. So if Ben Yoda knows, Lucas knows. A, why didn't Ben say anything? Why didn't he say, Leia's your sister? Yeah. But why did Lucas let Leia kiss Luke? And more than that, why did Luke have that reaction? Why did he allow that reaction where Luke sort of puts his hands back like a creep and be like, yep, she kissed me, she didn't kiss you, Han. <laughs> Game on with the bun queen. <laughs> I think because the characters don't know 
it's kind of it gets a bit of a pass but from george lucas perspective, no it does not <laughs> it's a it bit weird i mean if i was luke if i was luke i'd be annoyed i'd feel used yeah unless that's what luke's like well at the end yeah. luke likes that at the end he does either say or think why didn't ben why didn't you tell me ben about his dad good old darth so yeah the, I, why didn't you tell me about Leah before i touched myself <laughs> I mean that's heavily. I'll uh, never be clean. (laughs) (laughs) That's why he's so messed up in uh, Last Jedi. Yeah, (laughs) he's never got over the fact that yeah, sitting on that rock, he's like, I just can't look at Leia in the eye. If in real life, I'll have to force project her. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he's on that. Maybe he's on that that island because he can't stop thinking about her, so he can't go with her. That's, didn't say that in the opening crawl, did it? It didn't say Luke is Luke in, is in turmoil. <laughs> Luke fancies his sister. Luke's doing Zoom therapy from that place with the penguin things. <laughs> from Ireland. So we talked about the sisterhood. What what do you think the film is saying about fatherhood? Well, yeah, this whole thing is about fathers and sons and family, isn't it? It's about yeah. lineage. So basically, I think what this film is saying that irregardless of whether vader knew or if that information was brand new to him he absolutely became so convinced that luke was his son it was completely overriding he had this inbuilt need to have his son join him irregardless of the fact that it's for evil reasons join me and we'll rule the galaxy he has to have luke with him possibly and this only comes around, I think, because of the our knowledge now of the prequels. This might not have been the thing at the time. Luke is a connection back to Padme. Mm. He's lost Padme. Luke is his connection. Luke is half Padme, isn't he? So Vader slash Anakin is potentially looking to sort of save himself. Like subconsciously, he he thinks that Luke could sort of rescue him from the Emperor? I think so, yeah. And I, you know, Return of the Jedi is always the film that is credited as being, oh, now we're going to talk about the fact that there is good in Lord Vader. But I think there are moments in this where his inherent goodness, that even though it's buried deep, manifests itself there's a bit towards the end where they're trying to put hand into the carbon freezer yeah and <laughs> chewy's freezer. having a bit <laughs> buying me in the freezer that's what it is <laughs> it just sounds funny in the big freezer in the garage yeah. can you get the peas out please i will do a roast I th- oh where's the ice cream i think it's in i think it's in the carbon freezer in the garage can you go get it please <laughs> um but chewy's having a bit of a bit of a hard time he's having a bit of a moment uh-huh. and boba fett lifts up his blaster and vader pushes the blaster down mm. he stops boba fett from killing chewy and i'd never noticed that until this time and i really questioned why did he do that because it's never mentioned again it's not like someone afterwards goes uh fady um what, what was? What did you, why did you stop Boba from doing that? And he would go, nothing happened. No, nothing happened. Leave me alone. <laughs> Leave me alone. So I think they were 
I think they were already threading it that there is goodness in him. Mm, yeah. It kind of made me think, so one of my absolute favourite TV shows of all time is a show called Enlightened. And it's about Laura Dern. She has like a, a nervous breakdown. She goes off to therapy and she comes back and she's sort of like a changed person. But she's sort of evaluating everything in her life and looking around herself. And she has this relationship with her mum that is massively dysfunctional. But there's a moment where she sort of suddenly has this uh, compassion for her mother where she says, my mother is a child as well. And it's almost like, you could almost apply that to Darth Vader. You know, he acts like a child. He just kills people out of sort of a, like a, a an angry, uh, offhand manner in a way that a child would just discard a toy that they don't like. He is, he clearly has like his own father issues because he's sort of kneeling to the emperor who's this older man who is clearly taking him for a ride and is playing on his emotions as well and then he's sort of got this weird yearning for this this his son who even though he's a villain he clearly wants his son by his side so actually there's some interesting layers there that uh, princess layers there that are they are actually sort of possible to to sort of excavate well he's lonely isn't he yeah. Who does he have from his from his past? Think about I mean we didn't know it at the time when Empire came out, but think about his story. He had everything. He was like number 2 Jedi in the galaxy. Mm. He was considered to be the chosen one. Then suddenly he's got this girlfriend on the side and she's pregnant and then he goes a bit wobbly and kills a load of younglings and fucks it up and loses it all he literally loses everything but one arm yeah and a head and a body so his legs are gone his one arm's gone and suddenly he's this deformed half monster half machine half human thing who has he got everyone fears him no one's going to sit down and be like you right anakin (sighs) cup of tea what's happening do you want a kit kat do you need to have a chat (laughs) Yeah, I just want to check in with you. Just want to check in. How's your mental health? Yeah. Yeah. Mental health day. And the Palpatine's never like, yeah, have the day off. He's always like, you must get them down now. Always talking about what he wants. Yeah. Bring me the Skywalker boy. <laughs> but also, it's. It, I like the the idea that Luke kind of already knows as well because he has the vision in Dagobah where he sees his own face below Vader's mask. Yeah. So he knows, actually. What I've always read into that is Luke realises, or the vision tells him, if he continues down the dark path, he'll end up like oh, Darth yeah. Vader. All right, here's, here's a random question. Do robots have feelings? Hmm. It's mixed, isn't it? Because some of them are just service droids who just act like a coffee machine. Make the coffee. Make <laughs> to the coffee. act like a coffee make machine. <laughs> Self-clean. Make the coffee. But 3PO, 3PO is basically a nebbish. He has all the neuroses yeah. of a New York Jew. And R2 has the gung-ho of someone who has no awareness of danger yeah <laughs> he's always just like oh look there's a fire i'll go towards it 
beep, pop, beep, pop, beep, pop. But 3PO thinks too much. 3PO is like a babysitter. And R2-D2 is like the little toddler. Well, he's a British butler, isn't he? He's yeah. Just, just so neurotic. Does he have feelings, though? Or has he been programmed? Because he knows eight million forms of language, doesn't he? Or three mm. million? Something like that. Including Farsi. Um, yeah. What makes you think they have feelings? Well, we're programmed to have emotions as well, surely. Just because we... I don't know if we're programmed to have emotions. I think we have emotions inherently. Hmm. Because of our brains, the electrical currents in our brains. But a robot has electrical currents in their brain as well. Yeah, but they've been built by us. So have we implanted 3PO and R2 with their personalities? And even when their memories are wiped, they have the same personalities. The droids' memories are wiped at the end of episode three. So by the start of episode four, conveniently, yeah. I don't remember anything. <laughs> Wait Conveniently, I've been here before. Don't even remember who made who made me. Oh, that scary man with the mask. <laughs> nope, no, whatever. I don't recognise him. Right. So, but he has the same personality, just not the same memories. There is that moment in Rise of Skywalker where they're about to wipe C three O C three PO's memories, and he goes, "I'm just looking at old friends saying goodbye." Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And then conveniently, R two had a iCloud backup for him. <laughs> <laughs> fucking jj so i want fucking so kathleen kennedy if we programmed them does that mean that they are pretending to have feelings so when 3po is being sort of like tetchy or you know actually there's a moment where he's quite nice to three uh, to, to r2d2 there's a moment when r2d2 screams because he's been thrown across a room um mm. you know are they doing it to are they performing emotion for us or for their makers or are they genuinely have experiencing this emotion are they copying us that's yeah i mean that's the um that's part of the thesis of blade runner isn't it mm. do androids dream of electric sheep yeah that's the whole the whole point and ai as well just you know super toys last all summer long brian aldis yeah. are they having these emotions because they're real or is it simulated because that's what we need them to have you know, would Luke feel less of a hero if C-3PO wasn't always, oh, Master Luke, nom, 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 I love you, Master Luke, let me kiss you with my grill mouth. Oh. <laughs> Does yeah. Luke need that validation? Is that why he keeps that Maybe. fucking robot walking around? Because if you need to move fast, 3 is no. not your friend. <laughs> he doesn't bend at the knees. <laughs> I know. I noticed, and I've noticed this before, there's a time issue in this film. Uh-huh. Right? So, it goes like this. After the Battle of Hoth, Luke takes R2-D2, R2-D-Toa, and fucks off to Dagobah. Yes. Where he meets... <clears throat> the person that introduced the podcast. <laughs> Not Miss Piggy. Old Yoda. But Yoda. Meanwhile, Han, Leia, 3PO, they escape the Imperials, and they land on Cloud City after being in a big worm's mouth they meet lando and then mm-hmm. the double crossed and then imprisoned meanwhile on dagobah luke almost completes a full gcse in jedi training which basically involves running jumping and playing with rocks yeah from hoth to cloud city that's basically one afternoon at the most overnight but yet mm. over on dagobah 
Luke does a whole GCSE. So what's going on with the timings? Yeah. It doesn't seem that difficult to become a Jedi. I could become a fucking Jedi. I can jump. I can play with rocks. I can wear a novelty backpack shaped like Yoda. But can you raise an X-Wing out of a swamp? Well, neither can Luke. You're still a fucking Jedi. (laughs) I did. I think I noticed this a few watches ago where I was like, wait a minute. How long is he actually on Dagobah for? And how long does it take for him to get to Cloud City, etc., etc.? It doesn't really match up. As far as I'm concerned... Dagobah and Cloud City are in the same borough. They're around the corner. <laughs> Three stops on the tube. You yeah. could walk it. But is it a case that, because he's gone into hyperspace, time passes differently, a bit like when you go through a black hole in Interstellar. Mm. So for Luke, was it a couple of months? While the rest of them, it was just a, an afternoon? Yeah, possibly. I mean, Yoda, Yoda does say he hasn't finished his training, like nowhere near. So it's almost like Luke got a, a quick speed speed training and then decided to leave. Yeah, he just did like a five-minute masterclass video with Yoda. <laughs> I am Yoda. I'll teach you Jedi training. Sign up to the website. <laughs> I'd do it. 9.99 month. Jedi, you will become with me. My first masterclass. <laughs> it has gone a bit fuzzy now. <laughs> fuzzy bear. Here's a, well, it's all the same bloke, isn't it? Here's a question. Does Boba Fett recognise Anakin Skywalker as being involved in the battle where his father Jango died? Mm, don't know. Not enough evidence. <laughs> well, I put it to you. <laughs> I, I view this as separate from that, from the other the other films, because otherwise... Because it's it's like a reverse engineered franchise, it doesn't all match up and it doesn't all doesn't quite make sense if you really tear it apart. That's the thing that I mean, never more so than on this watch, I was thinking, do we have to just ignore the prequels when watching yeah. this? Or or is it inevitable that you you have to take into consideration the added layers that the prequels give the original trilogy? Mm. How can you keep them separate? Because it's the same canon. Yeah. No, I agree completely. It's it's It doesn't really work, to be completely honest. Maybe they'll explain it in Book of Boba Fett. I don't know. Maybe he'll give a throwaway line. Well, maybe, but the Book of Boba Fett is set after Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Well, he might, he might reminisce. He might be like, wait a minute. That <laughs> time when I was fighting in that arena... He's gone, all, he's gone all Western now. <laughs> bloody hell. That that bloody young good-looking fucker was that one with the bloody tin helmet. <laughs> That's not New Zealand. <laughs> he is from New Zealand. That was like London. <laughs> yeah, but he's lived in the West End for a while. Oh, yeah. He's acclimatised. London acclimatized. of space. The thing that I'm curious to see, the Obi-Wan series is set after episode three and before episode four. Mm, yeah, because it's be. the Ewan McGregor version. Yeah. But Hayden Christensen's been recast as Vader. Yeah, that's weird. And I just wonder, how are they going to navigate that? Because as far as I'm concerned, the, the when they meet in episode four, that's the first time they've met since Mufasa. That's how I've always read it. I think it's going to have to be flashbacks. 
he's gonna have to be there's there's surely going to be like parallel timelines going on where they're filling in certain events that happened around the time of episodes two and three probably episode two well no because no because he's not coming back as anakin he's coming back as vader oh right and i was i I looked into it the line you know when obi-wan and darth vader meet again Hmm. on the death star vader says we meet again at last the circle was now complete when i left you i was but the learner now i am the master and Hmm. i was surprised because i thought oh it doesn't mention anything about fighting but i've always read it as the fight on mufasa so Hmm. are lucasfilm gonna allow this to be a bit of a a loophole and go well no they met many times since and we're going to show you in a brand new six-part yeah disney plus stream and service series coming to disney plus in whenever the fuck they make it well what if he says i'm now the master that lends itself to this idea that he was in training for a long time to become the master so does that mean that he's that the series obi-wan is going to be is going to show anakin training to become a, a sith master it doesn't you know maybe he doesn't wear his mask all the time maybe he likes to like get out and moisturize you know <laughs> doesn't want to be en- be encumbered by the cape uh well two things to that one um he was trained by obi-wan eventually wasn't he as a jedi um, as a jedi yeah so now he is a sith he is the master he believes he is mm. he is the the dominant he is the uh the authority on sith powers and two there is that scene in empire where vader sat in his big chocolate easter egg and he's got his helmet being lowered onto him by a coffee machine robot and one of the one of the little soldiers walks in and sort of has a little peek and then carries on talking do you think vader knew that that soldier was having a having a little gander at his (laughs) big boiled head possibly unless he was still asleep just kind of just waking up I assume he sleeps sitting up like that. Yeah. Oh, my helmet's coming on. I better wake up. I won that pod race. I won it. Sand. Sand gets everywhere. Imagine if he's always going on about sand. They'd be like, um, Lord Vader, they are advancing. What should we do? I don't like sand. No, 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 no. The, Rebels are coming. I know, but I'm just saying I don't like <laughs> Just what reminding you. do about the rebels? Yes, I want you to know. Everyone, everyone listen up. Everyone must know. I don't like sand. Don't want to see any sand around. <gasps> you sound different. Oh, oh. I don't like sand. Oh, dear. Here's a question. Why is episode five seemingly above all the other Star Wars films the most beloved? Yeah, everyone loves Empire Strikes Back. And every time anyone makes a sequel, they're always like, it's the Empire Strikes Back of Pirates of the Caribbean. Or it's the Empire Strikes mm. Back of whatever else is out there. Um, or even Star Wars. They're always like, it's a, everything's always compared to Empire Strikes Back. This is the best one since Empire Strikes Back, Rogue One. This is the best one since Empire Strikes Back, The Last Jedi. Yeah. This is the best one since Empire Strikes Back? Question mark. <laughs> Return of the Sith. Huh. Yeah, it's weird. It, it's kind of up there alongside sequels like Terminator 2 and Back to the Future 2. 
where they took what was great about the first one and then they just went deeper and went darker and went more thematically interesting and actually more about family all three of them are are more about family than their predecessors i would say so i wonder if there's just some weird alchemy that happened that that just still means that empire strikes back just is the best star wars film just something about it was just so special it just works so well um that it has just become this this sort of like shorthand for a fantastic film let alone a fantastic sequel i think it helps that all the world building or the initial world building to get us in there was done in the first film oh yeah get that stuff out of the way so it's it's out the way and you can just get to the nitty-gritty of a great space adventure yeah two space adventures actually you know a lot of a lot of sequels especially with like fantasy or sci-fi seem to follow the split the group up Mm -hmm. and that seems to i mean it's an old storytelling trick but you know empire strikes back is the one that seems to have really owned that for itself which didn't work with um with the last jedi guardians of the galaxy volume two Yes, and that one as well. Exactly, that's the one I was trying to think of. Is because you spend mm. the first Guardians sort of falling in love with them all and seeing them come together as a team. And then the second one pretty much immediately scatters them around. And it's just not as good. It doesn't work yeah. as well. Because you want to see this unique, dysfunctional family working together, not scattered across the universe. But weirdly, we're fine with Luke buggering off in one way and the others buggering off in the other way. Yeah, I guess because they're not... They're never officially sort of a team they're they're sort of they've got the Mm. same cause i guess and i think because their stories complement each other so effectively and they don't come back together until jedi three years later yeah it's really ballsy and then you know han is gone for the you know the last act of this film and then the first act of the next film yeah it is really ballsy do you think that george lucas knew what he was doing Oh, 100%. Yeah. The original trilogy, 100%. He, I've been reading the um, the Star Wars archives about the first three films, so episodes four, five, and six, <laughs> just to complicate matters, um, <laughs> published by Tashin. And he had, written, he had written his outline, and he looked and he went, oh, this is just too fucking big for one film. So he cut it in half, and he went, oh, so this second half, even that's too big for one fucking film. So he cut it into three. Mm. <laughs> so he always had the entire one, two, three, four, five, six planned out. Yeah. So he knew exactly where it was going. And it's it's impossible not to see that. It's impossible not to see that. Even just from episodes four, five, and six, when one, two, and three came along, even more so. And that's what's been so disappointing about episodes seven, eight, and nine is there's been no care and attention to how do we go from one film to the next? What's the overall story here? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do. I agree that they kind of, um, what's the phrase? Shot the pony? Is that the phrase? With the, Fucked it. Yeah, with the Fucked new... the pony. <laughs> Slightly they smacked the pony. <laughs> they smacked the pony. So what's the connection between... Empire Strikes Back and The Shadow Glass. Why are we talking about it? Yeah, I think 
beyond the fact that I just love the film and therefore I just think it's a perfect distillation of how to create a world you know this the the way that the world building in this film is just sort of brilliant and perfect it shows you everything it doesn't tell you much it just shows you but I think that Star Wars was the first time that I became aware of of fans as a community with a voice and I think partly that's because we are internet kids we grew up especially sort of like mid to late teens um, Mm. reading reviews and opinion pieces all over the internet message boards all that kind of stuff where people suddenly could gather together and talk about the stuff that they loved and I think Star Wars possibly is the biggest fandom in movies at least Um, and so or at least the most vocal absolutely the most vocal and you actually you make a good point there about us being internet kids the Star Wars fandom I mean look by the mid 90s Star Wars was gone wasn't it Mm -hmm. long gone it'd been gone by in 83 no one no one really gave a shit it was only when in 1997 he brought out the special editions and suddenly people were talking about Star Wars again and it became a Marmite thing. You either love the special editions or you hate it because you either were in love with Star Wars beforehand or this was your first Star Wars and you didn't care about the new bits. Mm. But it's interesting that the special editions coincide with the internet and more importantly, chat rooms and internet forums coming into themselves. Yeah, I just wonder if he had released the special editions even just two or three years before would the controversy have been as intense yeah i kind of think it wouldn't necessarily have been i don't know i don't i don't know what the answer is but i do think that he was sort of unlucky (laughs) in the sense that suddenly all these people around the world clumped together and it wasn't necessarily millions of people but it was sort of a very vocal section of of fans who who came together and you know a lot of them a lot of fandom is great and it's all it's sort of like loving stuff but there is a there is a subsection of a fandom that can get a bit dark and creepy and not okay and i think that 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 does mm. exist within star wars fandom absolutely um and even though i haven't really i haven't really sort of experienced it firsthand necessarily I've read about it and I've read about certain things that people have said and you know there was that whole campaign to sort of to to raise money to remake The Last Jedi about six months after it came out you know this really (laughs) vocal um quite powerful fandom actually and I think that that was buzzing around my head when I was making The Shadow Glass making when I was writing The Shadow Glass (laughs) because it's um it's about a film that has become a cult classic where certain people love it and and so the natural thing to come out of that is well some people love it weirdly <laughs> and some people love it in a way that could be deemed antisocial and destructive um and so even though star wars wasn't direct i wasn't commenting directly on star wars and star wars fandom i just had that sort of like present in my mind and it was clearly a, a, a subconscious motivator for for me wanting to explore fandom and, and look at the the lovely things that can grow out of it but also the quite sad stuff that can come out of it as well well 
that was Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up next time. Oh, next week is it's a biggie because it's the week of the launch for the book. So we're going to put on our red striped pyjamas and do a dance. A magic dance, maybe. Yeah. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Acast so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Come and let us know what you think of Empire Strikes Back 42 years after it was released. We are off to go and sit in our big chocolate egg. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Cut. <coughs> You're a horse now. <laughs> <laughs>